We have with us today a, a guy who wears many hats. He is, uh, he was a cop, he's an attorney, he's an author of both fiction and nonfiction, and uh, he, I don't know when he sleeps. Um, I want to welcome uh, Lance LaRusso uh, to our show. Lance, first of all, talk about your books. You, you are a really prolific writer. I appreciate that. Yeah, sleeping is overrated. I appreciate you having me. So uh, we started out in uh, 2012 with a book called When Cops Kill. I've been a use of force instructor since about 1990. And, uh, you know, we did a disservice to law enforcement. We said, you know, if you get into a shooting, you'll, you can do everything right. You probably get sued anyway. So this is after the smoke clears. This is uh, interviewing cops who'd been shot in the line of duty, family members who got the call they never wanted, um, officers who were forced to use deadly force. And what's it like to live with that? Um, you know, for 20, 30, and 40 years. Then I also wrote a book called Peacemaking, which is about a cop's walk with Christ, and also a book called Blue News, which is about law enforcement and media. Nothing timely or topical about that, but those three books, all of the profits go to law enforcement charities. Um, we also have uh, some short stories out. Uh, Parallax is a collection of five short stories. Hunting of Men is my first novel at huntingofmen.com. And then we have a book for firefighters. It's called Firefighters in the Hot Seat and all the profits go to firefighter charities. It's about firefighters and OPS, internal affairs investigations. Just got a great review from someone who just retired and he said, I should have had this when I was a rookie firefighter. Lance, you're involved in uh, some of the most high profile uh, officer involved shooting cases out there and you know every day cops are in the news were judged were vilified it's uh it's crazy times here in 2020. yeah i represent two of the officers in the taser incident in atlanta and i represent the officer who um, was involved in the shooting at the wendy's in atlanta um, to date i've re represented over 100 officers who've been involved in officer involved shootings and critical incidents so you know, the bottom line that I tell people all the time, law enforcement officers in the United States are some of the highest and best trained law enforcement officers you'll find anywhere in the world. When we look at their training, when we look at the standardization, we look at the, the proliferation of science that goes into their training, the, uh, the input from the Supreme Court, we have incredible law enforcement officers. And then on the other side of it, the people that do this job are amazing. And as I've said before to a lot of journalists, if you don't like the cops that are working now, wait until you see the second string where we find people that can't pass a background check right now. And you're saying, hey, if you can fog a mirror, here's a badge. And unfortunately with the attrition rates right now and lack of recruiting, if we don't do something to turn it around, if the public doesn't do something, that's where we're headed. You're absolutely right about that. And, I, and that's what we do at the National Police Association is we help the public understand how they can help law enforcement and and i think a big thing is people need to speak out we don't we can't have uh unarmed uniformed mental health workers responding to uh violent domestics and and situations like that and yet law enforcement officers are expected to go to those calls we're expected to uh get people to uh, follow our direction, uh, do what we need them to do without using any force. And that's just not, it's just not possible, right? In many no, cases. and you know, in, in the book, Blue News and Blue News, When Cops Kill and Peacemaking, we've donated over $30,000 to law enforcement charities from those books. The premise of Blue News was tell your story or someone else will. 
And it's just that simple. And what we've allowed in law enforcement in the United States is we have allowed other people to tell our story and then sat back and complained how poorly they told it. And you know, one of the issues that we deal with when we're talking about these high profile instances, um, you know, people don't understand the law enforcement method behind it. I teach about 2000 law enforcement officers from the United States, Canada, and, and I've taught officers from nine countries. If you told officers that they would never handle another mental health call as a law enforcement officer, they would all volunteer to be on that shift. They don't want to do them, but here's the thing that people forget. They handle mental health calls with perfection and admirably and honorably every day, thousands of times a day. And unfortunately, we see on YouTube the very small percentage that go wrong. What do you tell officers? We, when I was a cop for 29 years, uh, you know, my, one of my biggest, of course, we were worried about, am I going to get hurt? Things like this. Do, am I going to have to shoot somebody? Now cops have to worry about, am I going to get indicted? Am I going to go to prison? Am I going to lose uh, the method that I support my family on? What kind of things are you seeing from a, a mental health perspective as well when you deal with these officers who are being vilified and criminalized simply for doing what they were trained to do? Well, I do a lot of media interviews. As a matter of fact, I think I'm over 600 now. And I will tell you what I told a reporter recently, and he was complaining about why people aren't volunteering to do the job anymore. I said, well, since March has hardly been a recruiting poster um, for law enforcement. You know, the bottom line, people need to understand the incredible stress that we see with law enforcement that only gets amplified when a law enforcement officer comes home after a riot, I want people to put an image in their mind. That's the uniform that children see their mom and dad go to work in. But when they come home from working a, 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 a protest, they're having to push the kids away and not hug them or get undressed in the garage and change because their, their, their uh, uniforms are soaked with blood, urine, and feces. That's what we're putting them into. So people ask me all the time, what can you do? And I'll tell your listeners, I know they're extremely pro-police, go find someone in uniform and thank them. It, it is, you know, I can remember having one of the worst days of my law enforcement career. I watched a guy die in his kitchen while firefighters were trying to do CPR and save his life in front of his wife and daughter. It was one of the low points of my career. There was nothing we could do to help. I ran into some people I knew, I had lunch with them, they thanked me for what I was doing. The person who comes by and buys your cup of coffee, sees you at the gas station and thanks you. It is a tremendous boost to morale. And we need every law enforcement officer staying in the profession and we need more good people to follow them. And that really does, it really does help, doesn't it? Helps the, the mental health of these officers, helps fire them up, doesn't it? It does. There's something else that I think people lose track of. So uh, several years ago, a Harris County, Texas deputy was murdered uh, at a gas station. And it was very high profile. It's a horrible thing. And I've actually met some folks from Harris County. And it, mm -hmm. it still gets me to think about how, how that case happened. Um, a few weeks later, there was a deputy filling his car up and an older man st stood behind his vehicle. So, you know, we're in cop mode. What, sir, is there something you need? Can I help you? And he said, no, sir, I'm just watching you back. Yeah. That typifies the way the public thinks about law enforcement, and we need to brag on what we do. You know, uh, every law enforcement administrator should love the fact that social media is free, 
you need to have a YouTube channel. And you know, I teach a, a class at a, at a command college on media response. I teach media response in different uh, conferences. You need to have your Twitter account, your, your Facebook, um, Instagram, YouTube, everything you could imagine you need to be telling your story. And if you have um, administrators and command staff who say, hey, you know, so you changed a tire for a woman in the rain, that's your job. Tell them to go work someplace else. Because if they've lost the ability to brag about the awesome things that people in badges do, then they need to go get another profession. That's absolutely correct. And you see a lot of really successful social media accounts uh, coming from large and small agencies. And yet a lot of law enforcement officers, a lot of administrators are afraid of social media. And in fact, they're afraid of the, of the media. One of my biggest frustrations in this current atmosphere is that police leaders aren't out there getting in front of the cameras or, or even producing their own YouTube videos talking about what their officers do, what they had to do in a particular use of force case and letting people know. Because, I mean, you know, of course, use of force against one of our citizens never looks pretty, but it's often necessary. What can police leaders do to help people understand and to call the media out when they report things that are just absolutely absurd and false? Well, and it's not just the media, calling out your own city manager, calling out the, the local representative who decided to paint a sign and march in front of your police station. Start telling the truth loudly and proudly. And, you know, the other thing is stop taking action or getting upset when officers call lawyers to the scene. You'd be nuts to be involved in some of these situations without getting a lawyer involved. The, the Fraternal Order of Police Legal Defense Plan, I think is it's unlimited, it's unlimited legal defense plan. I, I think it's the best plan that, that exists in the United States. Um, I'm, I'm actually you know, involved in it. I've been working with it for years, represented some officers who really, but for that plan, had no means to defend themselves. And the leaders need to understand in that department and I'll give you an example of this, they need to understand that if you don't start taking care of these officers and sticking up for them right now in a shortage, they can go wherever they want. You know, I've said for a while, if it wasn't for the high pensions, but I think we're gonna see it anyway, I'm waiting for a mass exodus of California law enforcement officers who turn around and say, you know, there's a state that wants us, here's a department that wants us, and we saw this in Atlanta after a bunch of officers were arrested, a bunch of other agencies said, we're not coming to help with your riots. So, you know, there's a lot at stake. There's citizens at stake. And yeah, your career may be at stake as a police administrator by not speaking up. There's worse things than losing your job. Well, and we see that the, the people that suffer the most in these situations are, you know, poor people in urban areas who really need the police. And, and I don't think folks understand, those people really like the police. They don't want, you know, there's a, some recent polling out there that talks about African-American urban communities, over 80% of them actually want the police to have more funding and they want more police officers in their neighborhoods. And yet we're being, cops are being vilified everywhere. Well, the defund the police movement, uh, I really think was a bridge too far and it woke a lot of people up. I can tell you also, there's only, it's naive because there's only two things generally discretionary in a police budget and that's training 
and travel, which is primarily for training. So the numbnuts, and I use that, that's about the nicest word I could think of, that want to defund law enforcement and scream about more training for law enforcement are actually going to reduce the amount of training because police still have to buy gas for patrol cars. They have to buy uniforms. They have to buy tires. And what's going to wind up happening is you're going to have traders scratching extra training off the budget and just getting the minimal amount they need to meet state standards. How much use of force training does your average American cop uh, get every year? What do you think? You know, I think the vast majority of officers get some sort of annual training. Now that varies by state. It varies by post regulations. We've tried to do a little bit of a, you know, a study on it, but sometimes it's kind of hard to manage. I know that in Georgia, there's a 20 hour standard uh, per year, and some of that has to be designated use of force, but most of the agencies I know double that. And then you have other states that are far more than that. And then you have officers that work with tactical units where everybody's complaining about, you know, warrant service and things like that. Those folks train every month. So training is not the issue. You know, if people want to talk about training. We need to bring back into training in schools that when a law enforcement officer gives you a lawful order, as a citizen in a free society, you're supposed to obey it. You don't have a constitutional right to be a jerk. You don't have a constitutional right to, to, right to obstruct an investigation. And I put my money where my mouth is. I came out of my front door one morning at about five o'clock in the morning, I get up early, walk my dogs and I had three flashlights come on from my, um, the trees in front of my house. Now these are not the, the flashlights that you and I came up using that look like Paul Revere's lantern by the end of the night when you had started out with fresh batteries. These are the ones that would blister your skin at 100 yards and I knew there were handguns behind them. Somebody had shot at an officer up the street and I fit the description. So they said, show us your hands. I didn't say, hey, I'm a retired officer. Hey, I'm the attorney for the Fraternal Order of Police. You know what I did? I put my hands up because I want to get shot. And here's a, here's a novel idea. I didn't get shot. When you look at these situations over and over and over again, law enforcement officers make 12 to 13 million custodial arrests a year. And I'm not, I'm not lawyering up on you. I'm talking about put your hands behind your back. You're getting handcuffs on. You're going directly to jail. You didn't collect $200. Custodial arrest. They shoot and kill less than 1,000 people a year. All of these shootings are very, very few start with active resistance by a suspect who was lawfully under arrest. Stop the resistance, you stop the use of force. Exactly. Comply now, complain later, as we, as we tell people. And, and to that end, we, we are working in this country under one of the finest criminal justice systems that exists in the world. You have the ability to actually have a trial by people who live in your neighborhood. You have the ability to challenge the evidence that's used against you. You have the ability to get your confession thrown out if the officers don't follow the rules. So saying, you know, I have to fight on the street is just absolute nonsense. And yet people say, the media says, politicians say, our justice system is inherently racist. You spend every day of your working life in the justice system. Is it inherently racist? No, it's not. And it's interesting because uh, representing some of these officers I've been I've representing uh, you know, over the years, I've been called every type of racial epithet you could imagine. 
Um, I've been lambasted as being the biggest racist and biggest bigot while I have two high profile African-American clients. You know, I learned a long time ago and it was actually a lesson I learned right as I was starting in law enforcement. Racism makes no sense. For people who are racists and for people who see everything in terms of race, they're not thinking logically. You will absolutely never change their minds. When you look at decisions made on the street, I want to give you a scenario, and I was talking to an officer about this the other day. A lot of people listening, you and I certainly have had this situation. You get a hot call from radio, it gets toned out, man beating woman uh, armed with a baseball bat in the middle of the city park. You put your life in danger, you get there as fast as you can, and the last thing on your mind, the last thing known to you is the race of the man or the woman, unless somebody gives you a description and you don't drive any slower to get there. Lance, you, you recently wrote about something called indulgent prosecution. Can you, can you explain that to people? It, it, it's an incredible concept. It was, it was a big light bulb moment for me. Can you talk about that? Sure, and the reason I'm smiling, it reminds me, I was an expert uh, witness in a use of force case, and I had somebody uh, bring up an article that I wrote, and it was uh, de-escalation the myth and they said, do you think de-escalation's a myth? And I looked at the prosecutor, I said, first, that was satire, but second, yeah, no, de-escalation's not a myth. It's not what you think it is. Um, so indulgent prosecution is a term that came across my mind after I watched prosecutor after prosecutor try to um, fix a situation by making an arrest quickly that never should have been made. And I've, I've made this point before, the dumbest thing you can do as a city or county, if you believe you have systemic racism in a department, the dumbest thing you can do is fire an officer immediately because you lose the ability to have a Garrity required investigation where everybody has to speak to you so you can uncover any irregularities even uncover whether you should have hired the, the man or woman who offended in the first place. But everybody's screaming for someone's head, so okay, we'll, we'll fire them. And then you've got, well, people are screaming for it, people are protesting, we better make an arrest. You know, if law enforcement officers walked onto a bad scene and without finding out all of the facts said, you know, Bob, I think we better make an arrest, it would make things easier, those same prosecutors would be wanting to crucify us. But these indulgent prosecutions where somebody's going to jail, somebody's going to be publicly charged, who's wearing a badge so we can put everybody at ease, never works. And I'll give you an example. It's a very hot topic right now, but it's, it's true. I don't know a single law enforcement officer who said putting your knee on a person's neck for nine minutes was justified. Not one. In fact, I saw agencies coming all over the media and stating that we condemn what was done. Now, whether it caused his death or not, that's for somebody else to um, argue. You know, we understand that during the physical confrontation, a knee can end up on a neck, but putting your knee on someone's neck is not appropriate for an extended period of time. And what did that get law enforcement? Nothing. Right. The detractors, the law enforcement haters didn't pipe up and go, you know, God, these, these guys are extremely reasonable. We need to stop trying to burn down people's buildings and, and, and stores. We need to look and say, you know, these guys were actually, maybe there's something to this. No, it didn't buy anything because those people are tone deaf. 
you know, we're unfortunately, they're capturing the headlines, but the overwhelming majority of people in this country love law enforcement, support law enforcement. And as you said, especially in inner cities, poor people, they need law enforcement. One of the, one of the things, you know, we've all done things in law enforcement that, that affect us the rest of our lives. I remember one of the things I did when I was in a, a more impoverished area, when I was patrolling, when I was on day shift, I would go sit in the community in this, these bad apartment complexes and watch kids wait for the bus. So people wouldn't go up and try to sell drugs to them. Mm -hmm. And that's something the average person has no idea. You're not gonna see that on an episode of a, a crime drama. You're not gonna see that in a movie. And, you know, and that's what really led me to write um, Hunting of Man. I've told people, if you want a story of, and it's, a, it's about a cold case murder of a cop and, and about some sex trafficking and, you know, and I told people, if you want a book where the, uh, the main homicide detective is an alcoholic with seven ex-wives who hates the chief and curses at everybody and does illegal searches, this is not the book for you. If you want to know how cops actually interact, how funny they are, how different they are, and how they actually solve crimes, then this is a good book for you. It sounds fascinating. I can't wait to get it. You know, lastly, um, there's, you hear a lot in the media and you hear from some politicians that the evil police unions are keeping bad cops on the street. And, and you, you mentioned uh, earlier the Fraternal Order Police. I was a member of the Fraternal Order Police. There are multiple police unions in this country. Are our police unions keeping those bad cops on the street so they can go out and, uh, and hunt those innocent citizens, Lance? No. And let me tell you an example of that. I have a friend, I'm not gonna mention his name, I'm not gonna mention his agency, but he was number two or number three in charge of a large, like several thousand officer agency. And they were a union shop. They had a collective bargaining agreement. And as he told me the other day at a breakfast, he said, we fired people all the time. You just have to follow the steps. And the people that are screaming about that don't understand the other side. There are places where officers are, a lot of places where law enforcement officers are employees at will, which means they can be fired for any reason or no reason, not an illegal reason. But basically someone can walk in and say, you know, did you write the council member a ticket last night? Yes, sir, he was doing 105 in a 35 mile an hour zone and I wrote him a ticket because I've warned him three times, you're fired. And they have zero recourse. So we actually need more due process for these officers. And it's interesting, these are officers that we would fire for the failure to give due process to a child molester who's in the active process of killing a child. We would fire them if they didn't give proper treatment to that person, but we will allow them to be fired without a hearing. Lance, I I'll tell you, you've given us uh, so much to think about and we thank you so much. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org.